This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Donald Trump did not win Colorado's electoral votes, but took the presidency with strong support from white voters and backing from women that was better than expected. And Trump got help from our first guests. Former state representative B.J. Nickel was part of his campaign's outreach to women in Colorado. And former state senator Greg Brophy led Trump's agricultural coalition here. And welcome to you both. Thank you. It's good to be here. You both volunteered to help spread Donald Trump's message in Colorado. What does his victory mean to each of you personally, Greg? Well, I'm happy. I'm really happy. It means to me that we're going to have a Supreme Court that upholds the Constitution. It means to me that we can finally repeal Obamacare. I mean, people are being crushed by these ridiculous rates for insurance that doesn't cover a darn thing because your out-of-pocket expense is now so high, you might as well not have insurance at all. We can finally do something about Dodd-Frank and get community banking back on track. We can reduce the regulatory burden that's faced by Americans. I mean, part of his Gettysburg, Gettysburg Address was to repeal two regs for every new regulation offered. And we can reform our tax code, bring overseas money back here and simplify things. It's, it's a good day for America. BJ, what does this mean to you personally? Well, Greg said it very well. And, and I think Especially for women, I think the national security issue was such a big deal. And I think that really helped bring a lot more women on than I think what the general public thought would. And so I think it means a safer country, you know, a safer nation, you know, a place where we can raise our families and our children and know that somebody is there. We have a, a new populist leader who, who brought in grassroots support from across the nation and places where where people never dreamed that we would we would bring it in from uh, from from Minnesota to Wisconsin and even Pennsylvania. Why do you think the nation will be safer? Well, I believe that he uh, he will uh, take care uh, to to try to secure our borders. You know, he's going to do uh, a lot to fix a broken immigration system so that people can try to come into the country uh, in a legal means rather than uh, you know. We have a bottleneck, you know, currently with, within the immigration system, which is broken. He plans to fix that and allow people to come in legally. And I think that he will plan to, to really do what he uh, has said he would do in terms of stopping uh, people from coming into the country that should not be here. Do you think the wall is literal that he wants to build? I think he does. I think he really wants to do that. But obviously, you know, and even he has said this, that it it's not possible to do that in places, but in some places, mountainous regions and such. But I believe that he, he really wants to try to enact uh, some type of border that will that will actually stop the, the influx of illegals. Uh, I want to go back to Obamacare. So hundreds of thousands more Coloradans are insured because of it. It is also open enrollment at the moment, and insurance rates are increasing. So are subsidies. Uh, Trump, like Republicans in Congress, wants to repeal the Affordable Care Act, uh, but hasn't been clear on exactly what he'd replace it with. Do you think that Republicans will move to do that day one, Greg? Yes, I do. I do. Um, We may not be able to get it through the Senate, so they may have to wait until they can go through the reconciliation process, which only requires 51 votes in the United States Senate. They have shown in the past that they can repeal all of Obamacare through the reconciliation process. And And, and while you say people have insurance, that's that's technically true. But if your deductible is $8,000 and you only have $1,000 in your savings account, you don't really have 
any kind of coverage. You have this theoretical insurance against a catastrophe, but you have a catastrophe if something happens. Let's talk about trade. One of Trump's priorities is to renegotiate trade deals that he says hurt America. And first among them is NAFTA. Colorado exported about $2.5 billion of goods to Canada and Mexico in 2015. They are the state's two largest trading partners. Uh, Do you think trade deals have been on balance good for Colorado? And will you advocate for them being renegotiated once Trump becomes president in January? Interested in the rural perspective on that, Greg. Yeah, well, after after 15 years, finally, agriculture got some sort of relief through NAFTA. I'm I'm probably one of a handful of Americans who's actually read almost all of TPP, for instance. And then I had CRS, Congressional Research Service, compare it to previous trade deals. I got to tell you, uh, the American trade representatives have been more interested in exporting our environmental standards and our labor standards than they have been our beef, our milk, and our grains. Agriculture is always treated as a third-class citizen. Insurance companies and banks are treated better by far than agriculture ever is in any trade deal. Donald Trump has said he's pro-free trade, but he wants bilateral trade agreements, and he wants them to to be beneficial to Americans. The problem that we have is, again, If we put environmental standards and labor standards at the top of our list of negotiating um, items with foreign countries on trade agreements and then never, ever enforce those rules, we don't have a real trade agreement that benefits America and Americans. We have a a, a trade agreement that benefits all these other countries. Isn't Colorado beef exported uh, all over the world in droves? You know, ask yourself this question. Why is it that Japan has been able to send an unlimited number of cars to America, but they won't buy beef or rice or milk from America? Yeah, that's what I always thought. There's no answer for that. And it's because the trade representatives don't care about agriculture. Donald Trump does. There is still a significant number of Coloradans who did not vote for Trump. And it appears he actually lost the popular vote nationally. Last night, Trump talked about bringing people together in a way that he hadn't really in the campaign. I pledge to every citizen of our land that I will be president for all Americans. And this is so important to me. But BG, I think it's fair to say that a lot of people in Colorado are more interested in what Trump has said throughout the campaign, uh, including the comments about women, the Access Hollywood video, for instance, the things he said about Fox News host Megyn Kelly. How did you come to terms with those comments as a woman? Well, first, let's go back to the fact that you you say that he really didn't uh, talk about bringing people together throughout the campaign and that he only did so last night. He has done so throughout the entire campaign. It's just that was not really aired as much on the mainstream news media as, you know, the more caustic comments that he made uh you know, at various times. And and certainly Hillary Clinton did a lot of the same thing. And that's just not uh, talked about. That was not uh, aired on TV uh, to the extent that it was with Donald Trump. Um, you know, as a woman, I like Donald Trump. You know, I trust him that he's going to do the, the right thing for America. I think that women obviously trust him as well. He did a lot better with women, uh, as you even said, uh, than than what he thought than people than what people thought he would do. And so, you know, people say things. You know, we all say things. I'm sure you do too. I do, and we move past it. I want to thank you both for being with us. 
Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. You heard there Greg Brophy, former state senator who led Donald Trump's agricultural coalition in Colorado. B.J. Nickel co-led Trump's outreach to women in the state. We talked about what Trump's victory means to them and what they believe it will mean for Colorado. Now to a longtime Hillary Clinton supporter. Polly Baca of Denver attended her first Democratic National Convention 44 years ago, and she's worked on almost every Democratic presidential campaign since. She was the first Hispanic woman elected to the Colorado State Senate, and she was a Hillary Clinton superdelegate at this year's convention. And Polly Baca, welcome back to the program. Thank you. No, I wasn't a superdelegate. I was elected at the state convention as a delegate. Uh, pardon me. The only super, <laughs> okay, the only superdelegates were on the DNC members and elected members of Congress. Well, take us take us inside your head today. What what thought has stuck out most? Well, I, I'll be real honest with you. I am frightened. I'm really concerned and worried about our country and about our future. And I'm particularly concerned and worried about the challenges that, that this particular election presents for for both women and non-white Americans. You know, it's, it's been very painful. You know, we as, I'm a Mexican-American, and I remember the days when I lived uh, as a child in, in Greeley, Colorado, uh, under segregation. You know, we, we were not allowed to sit, you know, in certain areas, or in theaters, I mean, in churches. We had to sit on the side aisles. We couldn't sit in the middle. You know, we, it was segregated, and, and it's painful. And I remember uh, being, uh, you know, having people bully me as, as you know, throwing snowballs at me, uh, saying I was a dirty Mexican and being called names. And, and that's painful. And I worry that that kind of hatred is, has been unleashed by, by the man who has just been elected. And what, what makes you say college. that? Have you experienced that um, in this campaign? Yes. Well, my goodness, the, the language that Trump has used, you know, by calling Mexicans and, you know, and, and people like me, you know, racist and, and you know, the, what, well, you know, what he, rapist. I'm sorry, not racist, but rapist. And what he said about the judge, who just, he was a Mexican-American who had been born in this country. And Trump says that he can't be uh, fair in a trial, you know, that he, that he was undergoing. You know, it's his language, what he has said about us, and what he has called us. And, and that's frightening, because what he has done in that is, is he has allowed people to think that it's okay to be uh, bullied again, and to be racist again, and to be mean to people of color. And that's wrong. And to be mean to women, by what he has said, his language, and it's scary, it's frightening. Clinton pushed hard for the Latino vote. Nationally, exit polls indicated that she got about 65 percent of the Latino vote, but that's less than Barack Obama got four years ago. And that's despite Trump's talk of uh, deporting immigrants, building a wall. Why didn't she break through, given the fears oh, that I you've think just... She did break through. I think she did break through, and I think she has an enormous, by out an enormous number of, of young Latinos and, and young, uh, you know, young people. I think her, her, her uh, you know, I, I don't understand why anyone, any woman or any person of color would, 
would have voted for Trump. I, I just don't understand that. I cannot, I cannot fathom what, what would cause them to vote for, for a man like him because of what he has said and how he has acted toward her. I wonder if that inability. I wonder if that inability, Polly Baca, if that inability to fathom that someone of color could vote for him when uh, it appears that they did. I wonder if that speaks to a fundamental divide in this country, a lack of understanding between two groups. I think what it speaks to is the fact that some of us have experienced uh, hardships, and we have experienced uh, discrimination. And we have experienced what it feels like when people call us names. I think that's what it speaks to. And it speaks to the fact that that there are those that have not, you know, those that haven't walked in our shoes. And they may be of our own ethnic or racial groups, you know, that that small minority that did vote for, for Trump. They haven't, they apparently have not experienced what we have. And, and they aren't frightened by that kind of language. And they may have other, other uh, reasons that, that I can't understand. And you know something, this is the first time in my life that I've ever been frightened by a presidential candidate. And I've been involved in every single presidential race since 1960. And I could have lived with a John McCain or a Romney or and the Bushes. You know, they never frightened me. You know, none of them ever frightened me. This man does. Polly Baca, thanks for being with us. She's been a Democratic activist since the early 1960s, served 12 years in the Colorado legislature, and was the first Hispanic woman elected to the Colorado State Senate. Up next, Donald Trump won the presidency but didn't win Colorado. We'll get perspective on that from two veteran analysts in the state, and we'll look further down the ballot with them as well. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We've just heard from supporters of the two major presidential candidates. Let's take a closer look at how Colorado voted up and down the ballot with two veteran political analysts. Craig Hughes is a Democrat and managing partner at Hilltop Public Solutions in Denver. It's a political consulting firm. He worked on the presidential campaigns of Barack Obama and Bill Clinton He has run several issue campaigns in Colorado and managed Senator Michael Bennett's first campaign in 2010. Senator Bennett was reelected last night. And Dick Wadhams is a former chairman of the Colorado Republican Party. He managed the winning campaigns of two U.S. senators from Colorado and of former Governor Bill Owens. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Craig, while Hillary Clinton lost the election, she did win Colorado by a little more than two points. How did she win here? Or conversely, how did Donald Trump lose Colorado? I think what we saw in Colorado is that in the suburban areas, Jefferson County, Arapahoe County, uh, Hillary performed very, very well, won those uh, counties that are traditionally swings by pretty solid margins. Also, Denver came in very strong, obviously, and the turnout in Boulder uh, was very good for her. So in the traditional base area, she did as expected and, and really won convincingly in the suburban counties. And yet suburbs elsewhere did not yield those kinds of results uh, elsewhere in the country. Uh, c- contrast Colorado with perhaps the other states that were an upset. I think some of it is that Colorado was really a demographic firewall against Trump in terms of college-educated voters, Latino voters, and the millennials that uh, he performed very poorly with and she did very well with. And that made it very hard for him to to win here whereas in other states where there are more uh, uh, non-college-educated voters, 
uh, Trump had much more of an opening, such as uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Dick, what would you add? Well, I think Craig is right. I w- would also add those the, the suburban women in Jefferson and Arapahoe counties, which always uh, – Republicans and unaffiliated – have always uh, kind of dictated statewide elections in Colorado going back decades. I think in this uh, campaign, they uh, they wanted to vote Republican actually and they did. They look at what happened with Mike Kaufman and other Republican candidates. But on the presidential, I think even though they weren't crazy about Hillary Clinton, they couldn't vote for Donald Trump. And so, so they split ticket. You they, they did, yeah. And uh, you you can see that in the results. And interestingly enough, uh, El Paso and Douglas counties, there was a slight underperformance for Trump in those counties. He he uh, underperformed by three or four points in both of those counties as well. And you think so, the same thing was going on? I there. think unaffiliated voters probably cut. Hillary's way in the, in those two counties, which kind of cut into the margin he otherwise would have gotten. So when you looked at the, the kind of red wave, the red wall that uh, Trump built electorally, uh, and then you see the square of blue that is Colorado, does that lead you to say Colorado is a blue state? Uh, absolutely not. I mean, I think Colorado retained its status as one of the ultimate swing states in this election. Some of it we moved back and forth between presidentials and non-presidentials, but uh, a pretty close win. I think Hillary's numbers will end up going up. We have a lot of Denver, Boulder, Pueblo to still report, but relatively narrow win, I think, dictates that Colorado will continue to be a swing state and can be won by the right candidate from either party. All right. I, and I agree, Ryan. Uh, the, the, the fact is, is that if you get past the presidential race and, and the Senate race, which we haven't talked about, but uh, Heidi Ganahl won a uh, statewide regents race over Alice Madden by a fairly substantial amount of votes. Which tells you that once again that there was ticket splitting. Mike Kaufman was reelected in the sixth. T- Scott Tipton fended off a challenge in the third. Republicans uh, retained an eighteen seventeen majority in the state senate, and so yeah, we're, we reaffirmed that we're a purple state and. We're going to stay that way, I think. We'll talk more about the Senate and House races in a moment. Uh, Just a bit more to the presidential race. Uh, Earlier this year, Trump said he'd consider three Coloradans for the U.S. Supreme Court. Allison Ide is a justice on the Colorado Supreme Court. Neil Gorsuch is a judge on the 10th Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals based here in Denver. And uh, Tim Timkovich is the chief judge of that Court of Appeals. Um. Donald Trump broke with longstanding tradition in this election, not releasing his tax returns, for instance, talking about locking up his opponent. Does 2016 represent to both of you some kind of turning point in this regard? I think 2016 is going to be a very interesting and tumultuous year. Uh, It already has been. It was a very difficult election. I think um, I'm at least encouraged by both uh, Trump's uh, speech last night and Hillary Clinton's concession speech today that there was a lot of talk of of conciliation, um, but uh, the proof will be in the pudding. And, you know, Trump, I think unpredictable is a word that you could use. Uh, And so what he has said in the past is not necessarily a barometer of what he will do in the future, which may be a silver lining for Democrats. Dick? Yeah, his speech last night was very encouraging for me too, because he cannot continue to have that confrontational um, uh, attitude uh, towards Republicans, for that matter. I mean, he he, had, he was attacking Ryan just a few weeks ago, Speaker Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan and uh, he's never had a great love uh, for a, a Senate uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. So he, he's got to he's got to build some bridges to Republicans who still control Congress. But I think he started off on the right foot last night, and and uh, he's headed the right direction. We'll see if it holds. Okay, let's go to some of the races further down the ballot. So the U.S. Senate race, Democratic incumbent Michael Bennett defeated Republican Daryl Glenn. 
by about three percentage points at last count. At one point, Bennett was viewed as one of the most vulnerable Democrats in the Senate. Uh, how did he pull this off? Well, I think it was a combination. I think Daryl Glenn won a very competitive Republican primary and um, was a little bit outside the mainstream of where Colorado voters are. So he was not the strongest nominee the Republicans could have put up. That's sort of um, too, too conservative for Colorado. Too conservative for Colorado. Really nice guy, but probably too conservative his policies. And I think Michael Bennett had done a very good job over the last five years uh, as senator working very hard to work across the aisle. It was very hard to call him a, a partisan on one side or the other or too partisan. And, you know, I think the reputation that he developed as a senator was one somebody who's working for Colorado. I think that was too much for, for Glenn to overcome. And obviously, um, Bennett had a strong resource advantage as well. And I'll say that uh, Dick Wadhams, you managed the campaign of one of Daryl Glenn's primary opponents, Jack Graham. What's your take? Well, I will shamelessly say that had Jack Graham been the nominee, it would have been a much different race. But uh, but what we learned again last night, Ryan, is that um, the kind of Republican that wins a statewide election for governor or senator in Colorado is not a narrow ideological candidacy. And also, you have to have a real campaign behind a candidate. Daryl didn't have either one of those things. Not a lot of national money flowing in. No, he because to be honest, Daryl didn't deserve it. He He didn't put together an infrastructure of a campaign. The message of his campaign was too strident for the state. I mean, all you got to do is look at Cory Gardner, Wayne Allard, Bill Owens, and Hank Brown. That's the kind of Republican that wins in Colorado. And and Glenn is a good guy. Daryl Glenn is a very fine man. But um, it, he never kind of understood the dynamics of a Colorado statewide race. So obviously there was a lot of criticism of Trump from other Republicans during the campaign. Uh, the state's Republican U.S. Senator Cory Gardner said in October he wouldn't vote for Trump. Congressman Mike Kaufman in the 6th, who was reelected in the Denver suburbs last night, also worked hard to distance himself from Trump. And the audience at his victory party last night was uh, somewhat hostile at one point, trying to drown out his speech by shouting Trump. Besides getting booed, uh, is this going to reduce, say, Gardner or Kaufman's effectiveness when they get back to Washington, having tried to distance themselves to some extent from Trump? My guess is no. I think really that once you get to Washington, there's an agenda that's going to be passed. And Senator Gardner and Congressman Kaufman are both in the majority now and will be working on that agenda. So Water under the bridge. I think that it will very likely be seen as water under the bridge. What do you think? Dick? The last thing that Donald Trump should do or, or and I think will do is to um, continue fights with people who did not support him in the general election. Uh, he does not want to pick a fight with Cory Gardner or Mike Kaufman or, for that matter, any uh, Rob Portman from Ohio uh, or and many others. So um, I think this will be quickly forgotten. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're joined by two political strategists, consultants. Dick Wadhams has managed the campaigns of two U.S. senators from Colorado and former Republican Governor Bill Owens. Craig Hughes is a Democratic political strategist who has worked on a number of presidential campaigns and Senate as well. Um, let's hone in on that Kaufman race just a bit more. So it was in Denver's very competitive 6th Congressional District, uh, or the Denver Metro's 6th Congressional District, widely viewed as a toss-up. But Kaufman defeated the Democrat, former State Senator Morgan Carroll, by nine percentage points, according to the latest count. Craig, how, how does that happen? Clinton wins the state. Morgan Carroll perceived as a strong Democratic candidate in a district that voted for Barack Obama in the last two elections. 
Uh, what happened there? I think you've got to give Coffin a lot of credit, not only for running a very strong campaign, but running a very strong operation over the past few years. Um, he, for example, profiled a Ethiopian woman in his ads that he had reached out to. And that doesn't happen by accident. That seems to me that he did a lot of work in the off year and really never stopped campaigning. And in addition to a, a very strong campaign. And then what happened really is, although Hillary won the state and maybe carried the six by a small margin, all of the late-breaking voters really went one way. And so most elections we see are wave elections of one type or another. And it's pretty clear that although Hillary and Michael Bennett uh, persevered here in Colorado, there was a wave uh, undercurrent, and the late-breaking voters really went Republican, both for Tipton and for Kaufman. Hmm. Yeah, we saw that nationally, the late the, the late voting folks, not the early voting folks. Dick, anything to add? You know, all you need to know about Mike Kaufman is that after he got that new district, he immersed himself in the Spanish language to the point where he could debate in Spanish. That's That gives you the kind of uh, insight into who he is and why he's a, a winner when he comes to tough races. I'll say that in the third district on the Western Slope, Democrats had held out some hope that Democrat Gail Schwartz could beat incumbent Scott Tipton. That didn't happen either. My, you two agree a lot today, don't you? <laughs> if uh, if Republicans and Democrats generally agreed this much, maybe the country wouldn't feel so divided. Uh, we're going to skip over the state legislative races because we're going to talk about those in uh, some more detail shortly with a number of Capitol reporters. But uh, what stands out to you on the ballot in terms of measures, what passed or what didn't? Anything catch your eye? I think the fact that the open primary uh, ballot Pass was a little bit of a surprise to me because the language was very confusing. But I think ultimately the the voters kind of understood what it was about. And prop in an election, prop one hundred seven and one hundred eight. Yep. Uh, in an election where they are kind of really voting a little bit uh, for change and against the establishment, that that became a little bit of a change vote. And so that passing was a little bit of a surprise to me. I think um, you know they passed the minimum wage, which was pretty expected. Uh, medical aid and dying with a fairly easy victory. Uh, and the tobacco tax going down, which to me was just really indicative of how much money was spent against it um, with about $20 million. So, but Largely I, by the tobacco industry. Entirely by the tobacco yeah. industry, I believe. So that's not a shock given the amount of money that they invested to defeat it. And so I think to me the open primary is is probably a, a standout. Dick, what would you add? The, uh, the measure that to reform the way we amend the Constitution, that is a major, major change. Raise the bar. Raise the bar. It, it will probably mean that we will rarely – amend the Constitution from this point forward. I, I voted against it only because I thought it was too onerous. I thought – I think it's too high a bar. But um, I agree that we need to make it harder to amend the Constitution. But um, but boy, 35 Senate districts, it's going to be hard and expensive. That is to say you have to gather signatures yes. from 35 yes. Senate and districts. Right. It will be incredible. It is an onerous process to gather signatures and to do it in all 35 Senate districts will be incredibly challenging and – Meaning that it favors people you think who are moneyed or – Correct. Yes. You both it will agree. be – it is nearly – it is impossible. I would say it is impossible to volunteer gather that type of – that number of signatures across states. So yeah. it will absolutely defer the constitutional measures to anyone with significant $3 million plus – uh, bank accounts to put things on the ballot. Just as this election is sinking in, I am going to bring up that we have an open governor's seat in Colorado in two years. Governor John Hickenlooper is term limited. Uh, he is obviously not going to Washington in a Clinton administration. Uh, who might be running there for the Democrats, Craig? I think right now everybody needs to sit back and sort of take a look at, at America and what happens in a Trump presidency, how things move forward, and then 18 will start to shake out. We obviously have a lot of 
uh, of folks who've been looking at this for a while. You have former state treasurer Kerry Kennedy, uh, state senator Mike Johnson on the Democratic side, Ed Perlmutter has been mentioned, uh, Ken Salazar obviously is somebody who has looked at this or thought about this. But to me, given the results both nationally and in Colorado, everybody has to kind of think really hard about what the election of 2018 will look like um, and what kind of campaign they want to run. Um, so I think that things could change, but we definitely have um, a lot of Democrats looking at it right now. Dick Wadhams, who would you name among Republicans? State Treasurer Walker Stapleton. I think he's very ambitious for to be governor. Uh, Arapahoe County District Attorney George Brockler. Um, uh, Prosecuted the Aurora Theater shooting uh, yes, case. Yes, and um, <clears throat> got a lot of exposure on that. State Senator Tim Neville, who did not make the ballot for U.S. Senate. Uh, Kent Theory. Uh, is it Theory or Theory? I never – Theory, the head of uh, DeVita. DeVita. I've heard his name. I've heard as an independent or a Republican. But, and there might be others. Who knows? Dick Wadhams there and Craig Hughes. They are political strategists straddling the political divide. When we come back, Colorado now joins a handful of states – to allow terminally ill people to end their own lives. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Prop 106, the medically assisted dying measure, passed Tuesday with almost 65% of the vote. It allows terminally ill people to get a prescription and end their own lives. Julie Selzberg is a Denver attorney who in many ways became the face of this campaign after her father's death from ALS. And Julie, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ryan. You began working on this when your father grew ill and stopped eating and drinking for almost two weeks in an attempt to hasten his death. You watched that slow process and thought that there ought to be something else. After working on this for so long, what are your thoughts today? It feels kind of overwhelming. It feels surreal. Uh, It also feels very good in that we have taken something that was started by a Colorado citizen and it was taken up by Lois Court at the legislature and when her colleagues failed her, not all of them, but when they failed her. To pass it at the Capitol. To pass it two years in a row she tried. To take it to the citizens of, of Colorado and to have something be so grassroots and so motivated by our people and have it pass so overwhelmingly is really, it's really quite moving. Did you think of your dad? Of course, yeah. So how quickly could someone who um, is terminally ill and is thinking about about, uh, going this way, how how soon could that happen now that this has been uh, voted yes on? Well, the law will go into effect, I believe, on January 1st of next year. And before that happens, we need to put some things in place. So included in the law is a provision that our Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment has to go through a rulemaking process. And that's to set the parameters of what our doctors need to do for their record keeping and how we're going to keep track of medical aid and dying in Colorado. So that needs to get set up. And then, of course, our doctors need to uh, get educated and trained and comfortable so that they know how to counsel their patients if they so choose. Has the campaign been in touch already with the state about that rulemaking process? You know, I I, I know that they were in touch with it in order to, to write the law mm-hmm. and to include that piece into the provision of our statute. Um, 
and, until last night, I don't think we could say for sure that we knew we were going to pass. So I think everything sets in motion now. Those conversations begin. Um, just briefly, some of the safeguards in place. Two doctors must agree to the terminal uh, diagnosis, correct? Right. Two different doctors have to say not just that you're terminal, but that you are terminal with a prognosis of six months or less to live. Then you have to make your request to your uh, attending physician, and that physician has to go through a very thorough review and a like an interrogation to make sure that you understand all your options, that you make sure to understand that you um, don't have to do this. You, you make the request. It's all initiated by the patient, and you have to prove that you are not doing this because anybody else is influencing to do it, but it's truly because it's something that you want and that you are mentally capable to make this decision and understand the consequences. That has to be certified, I think, by a a psychologist. Is that right? Well, if the doctor that you're seeing has any concern that there is a greater uh, mental illness that is clouding your judgment, then they must refer you to a psychologist or psychiatrist. What prevents doctor shopping? Uh, that is, you know, a, a concentrated number of doctors who who always say yes. Well, we what prevents it is is our experience. What we've seen the experience in Oregon. You have to understand, we're not making any doctor participate in this law, and so we couldn't write it that you had to have your lifelong physician be the one who writes the prescription because if they find that that's not in their medical practice, then you have to have the option to go to somebody else. So, but but. As far as the greater concern of doctor shopping, you have to look that the doctors are defined under the statute as people who are familiar with the terminal patient's illness and the treatment. So we're not going to have doctors that are inappropriately writing these prescriptions. We're going to have people who are internal medicine doctors, who are oncologists. That's what they found in Oregon. Will there be a kind of tracking program to see that this is meeting expectations, that it's safe, some kind of review? Absolutely. That's what CDPHE is going to do with their rulemaking. Public health and environment. Julie, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Julie Selzberg, proponent for Prop 106, the Colorado End of Life Options Act, which voters approved. It was one of nine statewide ballot initiatives decided Tuesday One of the contests, Amendment T, which would end an exception to slavery, is too close to call at this point, while Prop 108, which would allow unaffiliated voter participation in primaries, was slightly ahead this morning. Here are the final results, that is, from other measures. Amendment 69, a statewide tax-funded health care system called Colorado Care. Well, that failed. Amendment 70, increasing the state minimum wage to $12 per hour by 2020. Passed. Amendment 71, making it harder to amend the state constitution. Also passed, as we have mentioned the program. Amendment 72, an increase to cigarette and tobacco taxes. Yes, that failed. Amendment U, property tax exemptions also unsuccessful, and Prop 107 favoring a state-run presidential primary? Passed. Control of the state legislature is up in the air right now, with votes still being counted in some counties. We're going to talk about this uh, and what it means for policy in the session that starts in January with Ed Sealover and Peter Marcus. They cover the state capitol for the Denver Business Journal and the Durango Herald, respectively. 
And welcome to both of you. Ed, what's the latest on the pivotal race that will, I think, decide control of the Senate in Colorado? Well, I keep hitting refresh here on the Secretary of State's website, and I'm not getting any changes. So right now, it, a little more than half the votes have been counted in the Senate District 25 race between uh, Representative Kevin Priola, a Republican, and former Representative Janice May, a Democrat. This is an open, Democratic-held seat. Um, uh, but Priola's up by eight points. He's been up since the votes started coming in, and Republicans are saying they feel really confident looking at what's still out there, that he can hold this lead, even if it's not the full eight points, and that they can maintain control of the Senate. Peter, I think you've been more bullish on calling this one. Is that right? Uh, well, I will always defer to Ed's cautiousness. But, <laughs> um, but no, and, and speaking with Democrats as well, they're, um, you know, they're not uh, feeling very great about um, what's going on there. Basically, we're looking at what's likely going to happen is a wash. Um, the SD19 seat in Jefferson County between Rachel Zenzinger and Laura Woods, the Republican there, looks like uh, Laura Woods, the Republican, was the incumbent there. It looks like Zenzinger um, will have that seat. So Democrats will pick up a seat, you know, but then uh, Republicans will, uh, you know, pick up a seat. So it'll be a wash there. So looking like we can likely say that uh, the Senate will maintain uh, it being in Republican control. All right. And the House under Democratic control. Of course, uh, Governor Hickenlooper is a Democrat. And so he's in place for two more years. Um, I do want to talk about uh, some of the top issues that perhaps Democrats may bring to the fore. Uh, given uh, the strength that they have uh, here at the state level. I'm thinking about a budgetary maneuver that's dubbed the hospital provider fee, uh, thinking about a bill to abolish the death penalty, maybe more restrictions on oil and gas development, uh, and a push for renewable energy. Uh, To what extent do you think those will be priorities uh, in the coming session as uh, Democrats see it, Ed? Well, it was interesting that uh, Chrysanta Duran, the Denver Democrat who is extremely likely to be the new House Speaker, uh, came out last night and, and, and spoke after these results were coming out, and she listed off priorities. And they include, as you mentioned earlier, uh, the idea of, the, of uh, transportation funding, which usually means the hospital provider fee in Democratic parlance, and then affordable housing, equal pay for women, education accessibility. Um, it was intriguing that she mentioned nothing about oil and gas regulation. And I think that's because that's generally viewed as a non-starter at this point for the Republican Senate, especially when two of the Democrats in the Senate, Zenzinger and uh, uh, Sherry John, are also usually siding with Republicans on oil and gas issues. Oh. So uh, I don't think we're going we're gonna to see a lot of that. I think there is an openness on the Republican side to discuss the reclassification of the hospital provider fee, if not pass it in the way that Democrats wanted to pass it last year as a potential transportation uh, maneuver just because they so desperately want to get some transportation funding through, and they are uh, keeping pushing their plan to try to sell three and a half billion dollars in bonds to fund major highway projects. Hmm. Uh, all right. As far as the Republican priorities, uh, what do you see there, Peter? Well, 
honestly, nothing really changes all that much, assuming mm-hmm. that, um, you know, that the Senate goes the way we think it's going. I mean, you mentioned the House. The, actually, the House Democrats actually had a pretty great night um, last night. They, you know, with everything else going on in the nation politically, they, they're they looking like they may pick up three seats there. But it doesn't really change the dynamic and, uh, of anything. I mean, you're going to see pretty much what you've seen. I agree with Ed that, you know, the hospital provider fee will be on the table and Republicans may, you know, consider that more this year. But you're going to see a lot of the things you always see in the split legislature. You know, Republicans are going to work to try to control Medicaid spending again. Republicans are going to, uh, you know, try to deal with, you know, rolling back gun control. Maybe they might take a stab at, you know, easing um, any regulations on oil and gas. You know, but it's going to be the same dynamics, as I said. They're going to go through their list. They're going to go through their priorities. Democrats are either going to agree or not agree. And then, you know, it's, it's, you know, the rumors that Governor John Hickenlooper might be going to a uh, Hillary Clinton administration. I'm sure we could put that to bed now. So, So, you know, really, the nothing's going to change all that much, quite frankly. The Medicaid discussion might be influenced, of course, by what happens with the Affordable Care Act at the federal level. Be interesting to see that. Um, I want to say that Colorado does have a fairly even balance of Republicans and Democrats in the legislature. But according to new research from professors at Georgetown and Princeton, Colorado's legislature is rapidly getting more polarized. Uh, You guys cover the legislature closely, have for years. Do you think that finding is correct generally? Do you think... Lawmakers are getting more polarized, Ed? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons that you saw Propositions 107 and 108, or particularly 108, running this year and and seeing so much backing from groups like businesses that consider themselves moderates, because they feel like over the years, the primaries have created more and more liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans. And the truth is, there's not a lot of people left in the legislature you could refer to as moderates. Uh, I wrote back when Hickenlooper got elected in 2010 that he plucked almost all of the remaining moderates out of the legislature at that point to be in his cabinet, and they've not been replaced by moderates. Um, so I, I think there, I think the polarization will continue. Um, I, I think it'll be interesting uh, now that people are going to realize, uh, hey, we've got two more years of a split legislature to say, will we work together or will we just try to cram bills down each other's throats again that will be more election fodder than actually trying to get something done in the legislature? You mentioned uh, the open primaries measure. That is, if you bring more people into the process who aren't necessarily partisans, that that will somehow uh, not make things so polarized. Uh, Very briefly, um, Peter Marcus, uh, in about 20 seconds, do you think it's more polarized? Uh, I would agree with Ed completely. I mean, we had a public lands bill last session to just create a public lands day in Colorado that got bogged down in federal politics issues. So I always point to that as an example. If you can't even create a public lands day in the state of Colorado where we cherish our lands, yeah, polarized legislature. They got it done, but not until a lot of wheeling and dealing was done. That is Peter Marcus of the Durango Herald. We also heard Ed Sealover of the Denver Business Journal. They both cover the state legislature and joined us to talk about legislative races. Back in a moment on CPR News. (music) 
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The real action on Colorado's ballot is not at the top or even with the state house candidates. No, it's all the way down at the bottom with municipal ballot issues. That's according to Sam Mamet, who heads the Colorado Municipal League. And welcome back, Sam. Thanks, Ryan. We're going to go through some of the municipal items that voters passed and didn't. They did pass a new tax on sugary beverages in Boulder. It'll be two cents levied on distributors. That is correct. Boulder's following in the footsteps of Berkeley, California, the first and only city to impose a tax like this. And it was on the ballot in three other California cities yesterday. I wonder, Sam, do you think that other Colorado cities will take up this issue now? Does that often happen that, you know, one inspires another? Well, that's an excellent question. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, Boulder's the first, and uh, uh, we may see some other cities pursue this. But you, does that normally happen? Oh, I think sometimes. It depends on the uh, scope of the uh, issue. I think one area that's demonstrated a lot of municipal interest among voters is broadband. Broadband internet access that isn't necessarily run by a for-profit company. And what did we see there? Uh, well, we had uh, 19 questions on the ballot yesterday and all 19 questions passed throughout the state. So now we're... Uh, up to almost uh, 70 cities and towns across the state that have approved some type of question directing their city or town to look at broadband. Do you want to name a few of the communities? Yes, I uh, can. That, yeah, just a few. Oh, in the metro area, Arvada, Aspen, uh, Green Mountain Falls, Woodland Park, a number of smaller communities like Palisade and Parachute. With the idea that these are economic drivers for those communities. Correct. So Metro Denver voters extended a sales tax that funds cultural institutions like the zoo, local theater, symphony. A similar measure, I should note, though, failed in Fort Collins. Yes, that's correct. Uh, It was a countywide question up in Larimer County, and it was was, uh, defeated. Are you starting to see a gap, then, in how arts organizations are funded based, I suppose, on where they're placed? Well, that's an excellent question. I think that uh, cultural facilities, culture, art, these kind of things that are part of a community's economic development efforts are something that is a high priority for a lot of our jurisdictions. So, um, But not but, all of them necessarily. But not all of them. And, uh, you know, all politics is local. That is to say there will be variation. To marijuana, ballots are still being counted for Denver's measure to allow pot mm-hmm. use in some businesses. Uh, but we do know some results. What's the trend on, on marijuana votes? Well, uh, the trend has been that um, uh, the sale of recreational marijuana, the questions are, shall recreational marijuana be approved in our uh, jurisdiction? Uh, the trend has been that most of these questions have been defeated. And uh, that happened again yesterday in places like Del Norte, down in the San Luis Valley, and Florence, Lock Bowie, the metro area of Federal Heights. So uh, most of those questions were defeated, and we don't know yet about Denver's. It's too close to call. How about Pueblo? Well, that's another one uh, that's a, a bit confusing because there was a county-level question for Pueblo County voters, and there was a city-level question uh, for voters within the city of Pueblo, and I'm still not certain what's happened there. I believe those measures were to go back on uh, what had already been approved. I think that's correct, at least at the county level. At the county level, that's right. Yeah. 
Some communities also voted on tax increases. Yeah. Vail considered a sales tax hike for affordable housing. Right. We actually had two of these. They were county-level uh, taxes, one in Summit County for affordable housing through the County Housing Authority. That passed. Uh, but the one in Eagle County uh, was defeated. I'm told that that one got on late and just didn't have a well-organized effort behind it. In Lafayette, unofficial results show voters rejected a property tax increase that would have given everyone in the city a, a free public transit pass. Yeah, that's uh, that's right. But uh, in the area of financing public improvements, we saw many more uh, municipal bond questions pass than fail. Uh, a significant one because they've been struggling with a lot of in, uh, downtown street improvements is Glenwood Springs. They passed a $54 million bond question for various street improvements and uh, other things related to that. That's significant. Proving all politics is local there, Sam Mamet is executive director of the Colorado Municipal League. More coverage of local ballot issues at cprnews.org. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters on this day after the election. Mm-hmm.